This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Our scripture reading for this evening comes from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And um, like Austin was saying, it's great to use your body as part of worship. And so it's our tradition to generally stand at this time um, as uh, you hear the reading of God's word. So if you want to stand, um, this is, again, from the New Living Translation. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the same things, and we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think You can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. This is the word of God for the people. Thanks be to God. Well, in this time of the coronavirus, I've tried to be careful. I think many of us have tried to be careful and washing our hands a lot, wearing masks in public, obeying the stay-at-home order, not touching your face, no big gatherings, things like that. And um, for that very reason, because um, I've tried to be good about those things, when I see someone who's not being good about those things, um, I get very annoyed with them. Um, when I go to Ronaldo Gardens and I see a huge group of 
huge group of teenagers sitting around on, on a blanket, um, like basically touching each other right next to each other. Or when I see, um, a basketball court just filled with people playing pickup ball, um, you know, 10 plus people, or I hear about someone, um, people flying out of hotspots like, um, Florida or New York to go to Hawaii because, you know, tickets are cheap. Um, I've heard a term called COVID-idiots. I don't know if you've heard of that, but uh, a coronavirus idiot. Um, you know, these things, because I'm trying to be good, it's for that very reason I'm trying to be good, that, um, that these are very frustrating, they're very annoying. And it makes, um, it makes some sense that, that uh, one would be judgmental and one would condemn. And uh, it's instinctive, it's what we do. Again, it's, uh, if, if Christ had not come into the world, it would just be the obviously right thing to do, I think. But according to Paul here, um, it is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And Paul goes on to say that to be judgmental like that, to be self-righteous, uh, to lift yourself up over anyone and uh, to call them an idiot is um, is a denial of God's character, which is, according to him in verse 4, is, is wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient. He's long-suffering. Uh, he's forbearing. So when we're doing the opposite of that, we are, it's a denial of his character. We're not um, imaging we're not imaging God. We're not reflecting who he is. Paul is uh, addressing, going back to the larger context of Romans, first he makes the point that uh, only in Christ is a true righteousness from God to be found, uh, a free righteousness that comes down from above, that's not earned, not merited. Well, in chapter 1, he concludes by saying, all Gentiles, all pagan, uh, non-Jewish Gentiles, they are condemned. They are not righteous. They desperately need the righteousness of God. And you can imagine that the Jewish Christians in Rome would be like saying, you know, right on. We've been trying to tell them that for years, that uh, the, the Jews are superior to pagans, or superior to Gentiles. And then Paul turns on them and says, no, you also, um, you also do these same things and you have no excuse at all. He says, uh, we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things, in verse 2, Jew or Greek. So in other words, he's, you could say in the first section, he's showing that the, the irreligious people, uh, people who, are, um, who tend to be thought of as not righteous, that they aren't righteous. But then he's also saying now that the people who are religious, who tend to look down on people like that, they are also not righteous. So he's attacking everyone in a way and showing that we're all unrighteous. And... Paul says that the, um, the best way to fight against self-righteousness is by meditating on the last judgment, to remember that there will be a judgment and that self-righteousness will be part of what is judged at the last judgment. So he, he talks about that quite a bit. Um, in verse 6, he says, God will judge everyone according to what they've done. So I want to look at that first, how the last judgment, thinking about that can help you to fight against your self-righteousness against your judgmental character. And then after he talks about the judgment of God, he talks about the patience of God, um, that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin in verse four. And so um, 
You could say that the last judgment and the patience of God are like fire and ice or good cop, bad cop. The, the, the judgment of God kind of stunned you into silence. And then the patience of God melts your heart. So I want to look at those two things and the way that um, they are Paul's assault on our judgmental self-righteousness, our moral superiority, our religious pride, all those things, which are a great, great danger to people uh, who are Christian and of people from other religions. It's a, it's a great danger of being religious. So the last judgment first. Um, in verse 1, Paul says, when you say that they are wicked, and again, that's when you Jewish Christians are saying those Gentile Christians are wicked and should be punished, well, you're condemning yourself. Because you, who are judging other people, do the very same thing. And it's a very, very common thing that we do, is to condemn other people uh, for the very same sins that we commit. And we, we, don't, we don't even realize we're doing this. Um, I, I, one of the things that I condemn a lot in my family, um, I don't know if you do this, but uh, I tend to like things to be very neat. And so if I see uh, shoes on the floor that shouldn't be right in the middle of the hall, I'll just throw them into some random closet. Or if I see um, like leftover cans of uh, Izzy or like water bottles, I'll just throw them in the trash. If I see like a charger cord, that's a big culprit. There'll be just charger cords lying around. I'll just confiscate it, put it in my bedside drawer. Um, if I see papers sitting around, I just stack them all on top of each other. And of course, my family gets frustrated with that. But God forbid if someone moves my headphones, you know, if, if I leave mine out and someone puts them somewhere else, or if they take, you know, my leftover pizza and they throw it away or something like that, then I become enraged, not seeing at all uh, the hypocrisy and the double standard. And Jesus um, knew something that, you know, multiple psychological studies have, have shown since his time, which is that we have this astounding capacity for double standards, for self-deception, um, biasing things in our favor. So in Matthew 7, 5, he makes this humorous statement that you need to remove the log that is in your own eye so that you could see to take out the speck of dust in your brother's eye. So you imagine a guy with a huge log, maybe he's carrying a stack of two by fours and he can barely see, you know, they're completely blocking his vision. And he's got all these two by fours and there's this other guy who has this little tiny speck of dust. And this guy with the two by fours is trying to somehow get his arm around there to get the dust out of the other guy's eye when he can barely see it all. And I think what Jesus is saying is that our, our moral vision is so compromised um, that we can barely even exercise that faculty. Like we, we can barely even make uh, moral judgments about people because we have such a hard time uh, seeing our own stuff. And um, one example of this is how we tend to pick and choose what we're going to judge. And we generally pick things we don't struggle with um, to be judgmental about. So for instance, there's a, there's a pastor in Charlotte and he got in trouble. The Charlotte Observer wrote a story about him because he bought a $1.7 million house. And um, when he got in trouble, uh, he, he got up in front of his megachurch and he said, well, it was a gift from the creator. And then he said, and really it's not even that big a house. It's not that great a house. And so I love to tell that story because, um, because that's not something I struggle with. Because 
you know, having a big house is not something that I really struggle with. So I love to hammer that pastor on the fact that he bought this giant house uh, because that judgment doesn't really apply to me very much. Another example might be if you're an Enneagram 8 and you're someone uh, who's naturally, you know, challenging and bold, then you're going to judge the uh, the Enneagram 9 peacemakers for being kind of wishy-washy or spineless. And if you're a 9, that's the peacemaker, then you're going to judge the 8s for being insensitive and arrogant. And the point being that we take things um, that that are strengths of ours, and, and that's the thing that we often go around and judge people on. So, um, you know, think about right now, where, where is it that you strike your prey? You know, where do you, what's your go-to where you judge people? And um, maybe it's someone who would say, you know, can you believe her kids? Can you believe the way she parents or how out of control they are? Or, you know, does he ever exercise? Can you believe what he eats and, you know, the way he's so out of shape? Or has she ever read anything serious? You know, I cannot believe the kind of books she reads and doesn't read. Or my favorite one is, man, they're so judgmental. That person is so judgmental. You know, I'll go, I'll spend five minutes critiquing someone and, uh, and I'll end by saying, and he's so judgmental to boot. And uh, again, just not realizing that, um, that we can't escape the judgment of God by deflecting attention onto someone else. Paul says in verse three, do you suppose, oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's from the uh, English Standard Version. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? And what Paul's saying is, do you think that by judging others, you're going to deflect attention away from yourself? My children try this uh, at dinner a lot of times. If one of them is like 10 minutes late or something, and we start to get on them about being late, they'll, they'll immediately say, well, you know, he's always the one that's late, or, you know, she's always the one that, that, uh, that argues about being there on time, that we, we have this tendency that when we're being critiqued, we just shift, we just shift to somebody else. We shift the focus, the spotlight on someone else. And Paul's saying, you can't escape the judgment of God by being judgmental. Paul says in verse two, uh, God and his justice will punish these things, which is, again, speaking to the Jewish Christians who tend to be judgmental, um, he's saying that ju- being judgmental will not get a pass at the, at, the, at the last judgment. It's not a minor league sin. It's not like a, a junior varsity uh, sin or a, it's not a G League sin. It's, it's like, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's a major problem. It's, um, it's clearly the thing that was, that caused the Pharisees and um, the chief priests and the scribes to to essentially condemn themselves because they were so self-righteous, judgmental, and proud and arrogant that they attacked Jesus all the time. And Jesus says in verse uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, with the same measurement that you judge others, that same yardstick that you use for others is, is going to be the one that, is, that you're measured by. With the same measurement that you use for others, it will be measured to you, Matthew 7, 2. And if you think about that, you're going to be judged in some way by the, the criteria that you use to judge other people. So imagine this. There's a uh, theologian named Francis Schaeffer who thought of this. Imagine that you had, a, uh, you had to wear a microphone around your neck um, for the next week. 
Imagine you're part of a psychological study where they ask you to wear a microphone around your neck and it recorded everything you said. And so it picked up all of the judgmental statements that you made. And imagine there was some team of researchers that whenever you made a, a moral judgment, they just wrote that down. So, you know, she needs to start waking up earlier or he needs to eat less fries or she should eat less sugar or he never does any chores. Um, she always leaves the sink dirty. He never cleans up his mess in the kitchen. He's always late to appointments. She's never prepared for meetings. Uh, he always talks about himself. She never listens. Just think about all the statements. Even today, if you go back today, I haven't really been around almost anyone today. So um, I've, I've done a pretty good job today. But think <laughs> about what, what you tend to get on people about. So you've got this microphone around your neck. And uh, at the end of the week, you know, they just press play and they play all the clips of the judgments you made. And then they're like, at the end of the week, so how did you do um, with the things that you said about other people? And Francis Schaeffer says that at the last judgment, God's just going to hit play and say, you know, how did you do against your, even, even your watered down measuring stick? You know, it's not even the Ten Commandments, but how did you do against your own standards? So Paul says, and it's, the consistent teaching of the Bible, there will be a last judgment. And he will judge according to what we've done in verse 6, not according to whether you're baptized or you're a member of a church or you're Presbyterian or you're Protestant or you're evangelical, uh, whether you're conservative or liberal. It's not about that. Um, these Jews thought that by being Jewish, they were in some ways safe. And, and Paul says, no, God doesn't show any favoritism. He, he should, it's not like Harvard University where we, they got caught in a scandal where based on the pedigree of the family or the wealth of the family, the connections they had, you'd get into Harvard. And God doesn't let anyone into heaven like that. That's not the way it goes at the last judgment. It says in verse 8, uh, he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead dedicate their lives to wickedness. So regardless of your nationality or ethnicity or the amount of money you have, there's going to be a last judgment and um, there's no partiality. There's no favoritism. So that's point one. And in case you think that it's kind of a primitive, ancient doctrine that um, we got over like a hundred years ago, you know, one of the greatest moral philosophers of all time, Immanuel Kant, he thought that... Um, that you couldn't really live a moral life without believing in the last judgment. Um, he thought that you couldn't live in a morally serious universe unless you had a last judgment. So it's, we haven't progressed beyond the idea of a last judgment. We've actually morally regressed, I would say. You know, we're back to leeches and ox carts and outhouses. Like, in terms of our moral mind, I would say we're much more primitive than people were, say, 100 years ago. So there, there is a last judgment. It makes sense. We can't really live in a universe that makes any sense without having a last judgment. That's point one. But point two is that something unique to Christianity is that in that last judgment, uh, God is incredibly patient and tolerant and kind. That's point two, the patience of God. And I love verse four. My favorite verse of this passage is definitely verse four. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you. So he's saying this to, again, the Jewish Christians in Rome who are 
struggling with condemning and, and judging their Gentile counterparts who are not quite doing things right. They don't know the Ten Commandments yet. They haven't really figured out how to live a righteous life. And it's tempting for the Jews to judge the Gentile Christians. And God says to the Jews, but don't you realize how incredibly patient God is with you every day? And that he does not deal with you according to your sins. He doesn't repay you according to your iniquities. That uh, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, uh, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about Moses in the cleft of the rock. This was a time where um, the first human being ever really understood how truly gracious and patient God was. Um, Moses was up there because he was so frustrated with his people, he had to get away from them. You know, the, the murmuring Israelites, the uh, infuriating uh, Israelites who had just built a golden calf while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up to the cleft of the rock, um, some rock somewhere near Mount Sinai. And Moses, uh, weary Moses, says to God, you know, Lord, help me right now. Show me your glory. Let me know what you're like. And this is what God says to Moses. Uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's his name. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So he's saying to Moses, don't you see how patient I am with you and how kind I've been with you? And you yourself are a murderer. You know, you murdered someone. You ran out into the, into the desert. You ran away from your people. You didn't, uh, you didn't circumcise your son. You, you, you rejected your, your name. Um, and yet I was patient with you. Verse 4, can't you see that, that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That's an incredibly practical verse, that if you want to turn someone from their sin, the way to do that is not to hammer them, is not to uh, hold them accountable to everything. Um, the next time you want to confront your friend or your coworker, your spouse, your neighbor maybe even, uh, the thing to remember here is that it is kindness that that melts people's hearts and it is kindness that turns them from their sins and that uh, kindness and patience and tolerance can can get down inside of us in a, in a, to a place where judgment could never go not that judgment is never needed there are times where you've got to tell someone you know tell them like it is you have to be straight with someone and and say um, what is going on in their lives that is harmful but even there um, Paul would say there's, there's got to be a lot of patience, a lot of kindness. This is really, really helpful in child rearing and parenting. Uh, because what is it that changes the heart of your child uh, when they're acting terribly? And I, I think parents need to have strict rules and it's good to have immediate consequences. It's good to be consistent. Those are all good things. But none of those things will actually, um, again, will not get down to the heart they will not go down to the deepest place of change. Um, those things can create order, structure in your household, but they're not going to change your child's heart. I once uh, ran up the stairs, well, not once, many times. I I've, I've run up our stairs um, you know, at, after our children who've gone up and slammed the door and gone in their room because they disrespected me. And I go up there 
to, to get in their face and yell at them and tell them not to do that ever again or else so and uh, so forth and so on. Some terrible consequence. You know, the worst thing I can think of. And, um, and Margie, I remember one time, Margie, my wife, said, you know, what if, before you go up there, what if instead, what if you were just to shock, you know, your son or your daughter by, what if you just wrote her a note that, that told her all the things that you love most about her and just slipped that under her door instead of going up there and um, yelling at her? And I was, I was like, she disrespected me. You know, that would, that would just enable her. That would be, well, that wouldn't teach her anything. And I was very opposed to the idea for a while, but, but of course, um, over time I was wrong. We, we did do that. We did slip that note under the child's door and sure enough, uh, they were softened immediately. It's like it produces change in them immediately. And again, you can't do that every time, but, uh, that is what really does change a person. And again, in verse 4, his kindness turns you from your sin, his forbearance, his long-suffering, his tolerance, his patience. Even in the criteria for judgment in verse 7, at the last judgment, you see in the criteria that he uses there, you see grace. It exudes grace. He will give eternal life. That doesn't mean that you earn eternal life. He will give it to those who keep on doing good, seeking after glory, honor, and immortality that God offers. So he, the beginning and the end is he gives it and then he offers it. That's not works. That's God's offering. It's his eternal life, notice. It's his glory. It's his honor and his immortality that you're going after. These things are already pre-prepared. They, uh, they come down out of heaven like a banquet, like an all-you-can-eat buffet, ready-made, you know, like going to the Golden Corral and everything is there waiting for you. And you just go through, um, it'd be better food than that. Um, but, you know, an amazing banquet of that kind of food, like a buffet, all you can eat, uh, no, no price at all. All the honor, all the glory, all the immortality, all the eternal life comes from him. And he gives that to you. That's not earning, that's not works, that's not merit, that's grace. And most importantly, when you picture the final judgment and you picture the one uh, that will be making those judgments and the face of the one who will be doing that. Um, if you look at paintings like the one on the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, there's a gigantic one in Venice. Can't remember who painted that one, but whenever you look at the face of the one judging, it's very angry. Um, it's almost like what you would imagine Zeus would be, you know, throwing, you know, lightning bolts at people as he judges them. Um, or at best, it's a very dispassionate, very detached. Uh, face, like the woman who's holding the scales with the blindfold on, that kind of idea. Um, but we know that the, as a Christian, we know that the face of the one who is judging us is the same face that had a crown of thorns. And where there was blood coming down, you know, across his eyes, as he said to the people who were actually torturing him and mocking him, he said to them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, that's the only person that will ever judge you in a way that actually matters. All these people can say all these things they like about you, um, and yet the, at the end of the day, the only one whose opinion matters is, is this one. That's the only judge there will ever be that will judge you. 
There's a Native American proverb that says uh, you can't judge a person unless you've walked a mile in their, in their moccasins. And um, <clears throat> I think that's a great reason why we can't judge anyone because we don't know their backstory. We don't know their family of origin. We don't know what kind of mental health struggles they have. We don't know what they've suffered, how they may have been abused themselves, what they've been through, what they're up against. You just don't know what's going on in a person's mind. Uh, you can't judge a person until you've walked in their shoes. So we can't judge people, but Jesus has walked in everyone's shoes because he, he actually took on human feet and uh, he actually walked up that hill to Golgotha with a cross on his back and he actually walked into hell and came back from hell for our sake. And so the only person that will ever judge us uh, is not a blindfolded uh, woman but a man with scars on his brow. And uh, he will not be holding a gavel like a judge. Uh, he will be holding out hands that have been pierced for you. And so what will actually cause you to be someone who's not judgmental, who's not self-righteous, or at least who's fighting against those things? The only thing that can actually attack you at the deepest level is if the, uh, the kindness and forbearance and patience of God um, turns you from your sin. So that's um, what we celebrated this meal, is that the, um, the, the, the judgment that will happen at the end of time will be, um, will be executed by the one who gave his, his very body and blood for us, who took upon us, uh, took upon himself our sin and gave to us uh, his righteousness. And um, there will be no one else that will ever judge you uh, besides that one. So uh, let me pray as we sing our final hymn. Lord, we, uh, we all wish we could be um, eating and drinking together right now. It's very hard to have to wait, but we wait. And uh, as we sing this last song, God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us um, that you are a patient God, you're a kind God, you're a just God, but at the end of the day, you're a forgiving, um, accepting Lord. And we pray this in your name.